Today we're bringing you a special episode of the Women in Sport podcast for International Women's Day sponsored by CSM Live. We're going to be talking about the lost generation of girls. It follows new insight from Women in Sport that's found 43% of teenage girls who once considered themselves sporty have fallen out of love with sport following primary school. To put this into context on a national scale, that's 1.3 million girls, the equivalent of the entire population of Birmingham. That's 1.3 million girls who've experienced a loss of joy. So what's going wrong? To talk about this further and look at how we can stop teenagers from feeling and being sidelined, we've got a fantastic panel of experts. Tanya Martin, Insight Manager at Women in Sport, who led the research. Alison Oliver, CEO at Youth Sport Trust, a charity devoted to changing young people's lives through sport. Paul McPartland, Chief Exec of Places Leisure, which works with local authorities to engage local communities in activity. And Shruti Sujani, Senior Manager for Cities and Volunteers at the England and Wales Cricket Board, who is passionate about ensuring cricket is a sport for everyone. So Tanya, I'd really like to start with you. Women in Sport has released this report today for International Women's Day. Through your research into teenage girls and their relationship to sport, you found that 43% who used to be sporty have now fallen out of love with it. So what's happened since primary school? What's going wrong? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. So I think just to say this is part of our ongoing work that we're doing around reframing sport for teenage girls, which originally started back in 2019. So this is a big development for us in terms of really trying to explore the spectrum of engagement that exists for girls in sport um, to find out exactly what is happening and why these girls are disengaging. So we surveyed over 4,000 teenage girls and boys last year to really dig deep into their kind of attitudes and perceptions of sport and exercise. And I suppose the first thing to say is, is around kind of four in 10 girls are currently identifying themselves as sporty as in they're taking part in sport and exercise regularly compared to six in ten boys but as you just highlighted there what we're really concerned about is this 43 percent of girls so again just over four in ten who said that they used to be sporty when they were younger or in primary school but not anymore and that's compared to just 24 percent of boys so there is a huge proportion of girls who are dropping out at a much bigger larger scale than, than boys are and as you said these girls are girls who used to enjoy sport and exercise when they were younger but they've gradually disengaged and fallen out of love with it in their teenage years. Um, And as you said, over a million girls this is. And for us, this is a huge missed opportunity for the sector because these girls have experienced and valued the benefits of sport and exercise much more. And therefore, they've got so much more positive attitudes towards it that we can really leverage to re-engage them. And so many of them do want to get back into sport, but the way it's currently kind of positioned and delivered doesn't really resonate with them and it's not meeting their needs. And I think there's a combination of factors that we can kind of pull on here to think about why that is um I think first of all a lot of these centre around the challenges of puberty when girls are hitting adolescence and going through puberty over a number of years and trying to kind of manage you know really significant physical and emotional changes during that time we know that fear of failure during puberty is really high and not feeling good enough makes them feel that they're no longer belong in sport essentially which is really really sad we know that girls confidence really plummets at this particular life stage and in our findings 61% of the girls we surveyed said they don't feel confident when doing sport 56% said they don't feel good enough to take part and 68% said they fear being judged by others and I think unfortunately the sporting environment too often reinforces these negative beliefs and perceptions rather than breaking them down 
And then I think when we come to the more physical and emotional challenges that they experience during puberty, you know, this is making them feel really exposed and really vulnerable. So we found that body consciousness and body image concerns can be a real issue for this particular group of girls. 52% of them said they don't feel they have the right body shape for sport and exercise. And 73% of them said that they don't like other people watching them when they are active, which is really sad. And we know that just around the practical issues when it comes to kind of puberty and, and, and managing that alongside sports and exercise um you know over seven in ten girls of the whole sample said that they actively kind of avoid sport and exercise when they're on their period and when they're menstruating um, and this was 78 percent of the of this particular group of girls who said they used to be sporty and i think just generally there is a staggering lack of education and support um, and awareness as well around these particular issues which is something that we're really working hard at, at women in sport to tackle through our other projects as well there's some really deep rooted issues that you you sort of mentioned there, Tanya, with these external and internal pressures that girls are facing, particularly in their teenage years. How important is it for us to provide those opportunities for them to experience that joy and that love of sport? I think it's really, really vital. I think, like I just said there, I don't think sport and exercise has really grown with the girls as they've matured and gone into adolescence from primary school. 38% of the girls that we surveyed in this particular group said that there was nothing available that they wanted to do within their communities. And so obviously, you know, motivation and appeal and interest is all waning within this particular group because there's just nothing available that, that really speaks to them, really resonates sorry, with what's important in their lives right now. Paul, it might be a, a good time for you to step in here. Obviously, Places Leisure is really focused on, on making a difference to the lives of communities. Do you want to just tell us a little bit of, more about the work that you do? And obviously, we've heard from Tanya about the lack of opportunity within communities and what Places Leisure is, is maybe doing to try and fix that. Yeah, that sounds a depressing story, doesn't it there? But but I think I think, I think think we have to accept that, I mean, we, we are continuing to learn and we're continuing to to look at opportunities where they exist. So we've learned a lot from the uh, This Girl Can class pilot that we did in partnership with EMD and Sport England. And that was around access, content, and marketing, the tone of voice and the way that we can attract young girls back in to exercise and sport. Um, and those sites that we use to pilot that have all continued to offer the class past the pilot stage. And we've also now rolled that out to other uh, class formats across the Lon London boroughs. Um, we've also taken the opportunity to jump on the tampon tax fund projects and in Amber Valley, Rotherham, Sheffield and Norwich, we do quite significant outreach and engagement to nine to 15 year old girls, particularly in deprived areas uh, that are currently in active and experiencing period poverty. And I think where the pandemic has, has changed things, and, and hopefully we'll start to see this flowing through in some of the stats is that we're offering both digital and on-site memberships. Um, so the opportunity for girls now to access content in the comfort of their own homes is something that perhaps we weren't seeing prior to the pandemic. And those are all supported with age-appropriate supportive group sessions. They're facilitated by our big sister instructors that are there to improve confidence and build social support networks. Um, and we've trained the whole site team to, to ensure both male and female staff members really understand the products that are available as part of the tampon tax fund, but also the challenges that girls are facing. Um, so I think, I think we're, we're on a journey. Um, we've got a long, long way to go, but we are encompassing significant training. Um, we're really trying to listen and understand, you know, what is it 
why is it the girls are saying there's just nothing that excites them or nothing there for them? And it's only through listening that we'll, we'll be able to adapt our programmes to to make sure we're trying to hit the kind of things that we want to go for. And equally as well, across the whole places leisure estate, uh, we do specific gym sessions for 11 to 15-year-olds, um, and every, every adult member can add four kids free on their premium memberships, which, again, is just trying to break down some of those barriers to prevent children and young girls from accessing the facilities that we have. But we absolutely recognise the whole sector's still got a long way to go, but we've got to keep listening and keep adapting our programmes to suit. Ali, I'd, I'd love to bring you in at this stage. I mean, you've got a huge amount of experience working in with the schools and education sector. Does any of this surprise you? It doesn't surprise me, no. It saddens me greatly. A lot of the statistics Tanya shares endorses, you know, supports findings from our own research and work. Everything from, you know, the relevance of physical education and, and does it still offer some meaning and some value uh, to young women and girls, we know from our insight that young women and girls are um, more engaged if they can see some direct relevance and if it has a purpose and contribution to other interests and things that they aspire to do. Um, the research on periods, our, our most late, latest insight shows that actually that is having a more significant impact today than it was even three years ago. It is becoming a greater barrier to, to young women and girls. Um, and I think there, there's some uh, work that's been undertaken by a number of universities actually around the amount of education that's going on around periods of menstruation and, and whether young women and girls are getting sufficient advice. And I know that that research particularly highlighted that of all of the education going on in schools around periods, uh, I think it's only 18% uh, reported that there was anything to do with the importance of physical activity during a period and the way that that can help and, and support young girls as they, they're going through that. So all of that does sort of chime and, and echo and, and of course sadden me, but probably to add to that, um, the other things that we do know are going on are disruption to friendship groups as children move from primary to secondary, and of course, because the education landscape's changed. Uh, young girls very rarely now move with their entire friendship group from primary to secondary. Um, the, the, you know, the, the changes in school catchment and the fact that uh, parents have a lot more choice in where they send children does have a disruptive impact on, on friendship groups. And, and we know girls are particularly motivated to want to play sport, actually, when they can be in their friendship group, particularly around competitive school sport, that girls actually... Uh, they don't like com competition in the same way that boys like it, but they don't not want to do it. They just don't want to be told who they need to be in a team with and who they need to play. They want to play with their friends and, and, and see, see the fun and, and friendship of, of competition. But also there is a dynamic here around schoolwork and girls tend to report they don't have the time or schoolwork is more of a priority for them again than boys. So it's another reason why we, we see that gap. So, no, it's, it, it's really saddening. Um, and without a doubt, there's, there's certainly more that can be done on it. And one of the things that we have devoted our last strategy, actually, we're just coming to the end of it, but since 2018, we've been focusing very heavily on the transformation of physical education. And, um, you know, we, we, we know that girls are actually definitely interested in their health and well-being. They report that as something that is important to them in their life. But they don't see physical education as being about their health and well-being and their personal development. They see it being about sport and about the development of technical, tactical and technical competence. So um, 
there is definitely plenty of scope and plenty of headroom in today's world, particularly post the, the pandemic, to really reposition physical education for girls, but for everybody. So it's much more relevant and, and playing a role in helping us all recover from you know the dark days that we've had in the last two years. One of the biggest problems, Ali, is this kind of general acceptance that teenagers just disengage from sport. I mean, you, you obviously mentioned some of the problems there that's been highlighted in, in women in sport research as well. By accepting this general attitude, are we failing a generation of girls? Without doubt, yes. Um, and um, obviously today, International Women's Day, we're, we're focusing on girls, but it, but it equally applies to, to boys as well. You know, the, the world is changing at such a dramatic rate that the balance in children's lives between activity, sleep and sedentary behaviours is all uh, pushed out of shape at the moment. And, you know, and if we do nothing, um, not only to keep girls in sport, but nothing to actually amplify that young people need to be more physically active simply to cope with the changing world than, than we are. But more so than that, I think we're, you know, it's not just the generation. We're letting down generations to come. These young women and girls will become the mothers of tomorrow. They will become the teachers of tomorrow, the doctors of tomorrow, the politicians of tomorrow. So what we're storing up here is, um, you know, an, an explosion of inactivity um, in, in, you know, or a greater gap between young women and, and young boys' participation will manifest itself in a lifelong uh, lack of physical activity, I think. So it's, it's more than failing this generation. I mean, I'm in, a, I'm in a school in Liverpool today and we've been talking to the teachers here about life at school and the routine of life at school cannot be the same today as it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, yet schools are still wound up in, in a methodology of doing things and physical education needs to move on and absolutely needs to embrace these voices, these insights, you know, the great work of women in sport and young women and girls, what they're telling us is if we listen to that, we can change. We can embrace the things they want, embrace the activities that they like, embrace the intent and the focus that is more appealing to them. So I don't feel we need to fail a generation, but if we do nothing, we absolutely will and, and can have a problem for, for generations to come. Really good time seizing the opportunity, seizing this time. Shruti, I'd love to come on to you. Cricket's been a massive part of your life. As a, as a girl, you were one of the only females at training. I'd just love to start with kind of understanding how that experience was for you. It, I recall the experience and it was, it was, I guess, it took me back to thinking, do I belong here? Um, is this where I should be? But the benefits that I got from partaking in sports and physical activity were so surreal, like making friends, lifelong friendships, um, being a part of a team, um, also just staying fit. Um, and as Ali's mentioned, just around my mental health, I felt I was able to conquer any challenge that came at me, but through the skills that I learned through picking up a bat and ball. So it played a huge part in my life. And talking about joy, it's really clear when you're talking about cricket, the joy that that gave you in your life. Um, and I'm sure it's part of the reason why you do what you do now at the ECB, to provide other girls with the opportunity. We've talked about some of the barriers preventing teenage girls from engaging in sport, but I'd love to know from your point of view, the sort of additional barriers that South Asian communities face in particular. So as a South Asian woman, and as I grew up, and 
some of the barriers that I faced are still very apparent today. And it is around the lack of role models. And I truly believe if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that there are not many South Asian females who are in the sporting world. Um, and it's really difficult when you don't see people like you to believe that you can do it too. Um, also, we know that in um, a lot of the South Asian community, I'm, um, I guess, urban areas and the opportunities to play are also really limited. So having the access to opportunities where you can go out, be physical activity, sorry, take part in physical activity or take part in sport you enjoy with your friends was also really hard to come by. And also there's a lot of things in our community and in our culture that pulls our time. So having a sport that was flexible and understanding to other commitments that we have in our lifestyle uh, was very hard to come by. And as you mentioned, I'm really fortunate, I'm really excited that some of the challenges that I faced growing up, be, being able to take part in a sport that fitted around my lifestyle, around my cultural commitments, uh, we've been able to actually implement some of the changes through our Dream Big programme. And we've just seen the uptake go through the roof from women and girls because of these little changes that fit into their lifestyle and fit into, I guess, my lifestyle when I was growing up as well. You're instrumental now at the UCB of breaking down some of those barriers. Um, how do we start to change? I mean, you, you mentioned small changes, but how do we change the narrative for all teenage girls and make sport a place where all girls feel valued and accepted? So what's really exciting is just a few days ago, the England Wales Cricket Board launched our latest campaign, which is We Got Game. And that's all about having a platform where we celebrate female players from elite to grassroots, both on and off the pitch. But not only do we celebrate the successes on the pitch, but also off the field. So their lifestyle, um, the things they go through, the, the choices they make. Um, and it's all about making sport that's relevant to these individuals. I think visibility plays a big part. So having role models, um, again, from both on and off the pitch is super crucial. And I think shining a spotlight on individuals' personalities um, and by showcasing this and having the platforms through various means and media, um, Instagram, socials, um, wherever these young girls, these young teenagers are, making sure we're there as well and we're showcasing sports to be as relevant or in this case, cricket to be as relevant to their lifestyles. And I think we've got to raise awareness, but we've also got to create a community where we can talk about things. So as you mentioned, periods and menstrual cycles, so creating a safe space where we can talk about the challenges that we're facing in this day and age. And I think it's a long journey. It's definitely not an overnight fix, but I'm really excited for this campaign to make that little splash and make a change in the world of cricket. It sounds absolutely amazing. And we're one of the first to hear about it. So Absolute pleasure. Ali or Paul, have you got anything to kind of say on, on that project in particular? We are really excited to join any campaign and get behind it. I mean, as an overarching business, we, we're we trying to build on uh, what we've called eight uh, principles for success. Um, and they are no judgment. We need to invoke excitement. We need to ensure the activity is emotionally rewarding. We need to open people's eyes to what's there and what's available currently build into existing habits, uh, give girls a voice and a choice. We've got some sites now where we have a female forum. So uh, that point I made earlier around getting feedback and understanding and changing 
uh, timetables and activity is in it. Um, we need to champion what's in it for them and we need to expand the image of what sporty looks like. And it's great to see big organisations like Adidas now really coming out and showing different shapes and sizes, different bras. We're really breaking down some of those barriers around why some girls choose not to stay sporty. Um, we're also conducting virtual tours of our facilities so that people are nervous around what to expect. They can uh, view that online before they get there. They can understand the layout of the building. Uh, we really want to promote uh, buddy uh, training and trying activities with a friend or a family member and not, not trying to do things alone. Um, so I think there's a hell of a lot that we can do um, but they will be small steps, you know. We're not we're not going to fix this issue very very quickly, and I think it's a combination of of lots of different industry bodies, uh, um, absolutely all coming together and trying to find solutions to it. Great um, to hear, Paul, about your principles. I think those sorts of principles again echo very much what um, is at the heart of Girls Active, which is sort of our work here at the YST. And it's great actually that across the landscape, whoever you talk to now, those same principles are coming out that sort of you know make this relevant to young women think about where young women are at and as Shruti said kind of engage in those communities where where women and girls are rather than coming at it from from sport Uh, the power of friendship and and particularly having fun and being healthy is just such a strong mantra that we should all be championing um role models for the future i mean i love to what we just talked about and kind of you know having a wide and diverse range of role models not the role models for physical activity are always those that sit on the top of the olympic or paralympic podium these are these are everyday women in everyday lives being the very best that they can be and, and physical activity being being a part of that i'm really really keen that this voice of young women and girls sits at the heart of everything really where where are they and we find it so often in, in PE and school sport, you know, I can say this as a former PE teacher, the temptation is to think that we are the experts and we know what's what's right and, the, you know, the right activities or the right uh, way to deliver. And actually what Girls Active has showed us is you just turn that on the head, is us as educators and teachers, our job is to listen the voice of those that we're trying to engage and they will make it engaging for themselves and then for their peers and girls active is all about peer leadership and it's shown that these women and girls you know to be teachers are not the problem to try and be engaged they're the solution they are there in front of us we just need to give them a voice uh, give them the opportunity and sometimes equip them with the skills to lead and organize the activity as well as as uh, deciding what should be in it so i think that this, this is a principles approach across the system. If everybody is applying these sorts of things that the insight and the research is showing us, we have the best possible chance of, of, of shifting the dial. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful, isn't it? You know, putting yourself in the shoes of teenage girls, which it seems obvious. It seems an obvious solution, really, when you think about it. But nobody's been doing it or not been doing it effectively. So, we, you know, we need to start now. And um, Shruti, this is something that you've been doing really, really well uh, with your work at the at the ECB, you know, listening to the, to the girls and, and changing things and involving them. How important as well are, are formats like The 100 to inspire teenagers that they do belong in sport and that they do have a place at, at whatever level of sport that might be? Whenever anyone mentions the 100, I go back to thinking of the Lord's Vinyl and what a game-changing 
um, tournament that was for cricket. And we saw record-breaking numbers um, attend the women's games, so over a quarter million in terms of attendance for all the women's games. And what the 100 did was make cricket relevant to this younger, diverse audience. And not only on the pitch were we able to see the visibility of the female athletes who are on the pathway to become the next generation, so the next England team and gateway to the international games. But we also saw off the pitch where through 100 Rising, we were able to create roles for um, young, diverse audiences and in particular um, girls around having a role which was volunteering or paid and take part in the game. So you would have seen there was talent in Stadia where there were presenters from diverse audiences. Uh, we had talent who were helping on match reporting and also um, touring around with the team. So giving these women and girls, but also the, the um, representation around experiences like only a tournament like the 100 could give. Um, and this year we're really excited to build on that and continue to show the power the 100 has um, both on and off the pitch and in communities. One of the things that we have found at Women in Sport is the lack of self-belief. And, you know, that can start as early as seven years old. And it just seems to escalate as girls reach their teenage years. What more can we done to help girls build their confidence and, and start to really believe in themselves? It's really interesting because from the work that I've been doing, we've been seeing that from the All-Stars and Dynamo's age. And if they miss a catch or if they don't hit a ball, you can see them take a take a back seat. And I think it's that constant positive affirmation and reinforcement from their coaches or be it um, the leaders who are creating the environment. So I think it's so important, the environment that we allow these young girls to start their sporting love in, that they are, they are reminded of the fun that a sport can bring and not just the technicality that sits behind it. So I think a lot of emphasis on giving it a go and trying and then also giving them responsibility to lead their own sessions and have a bit of fun because by giving them ownership, they were more likely to do it and continue it later on and also empower their friends to come on the journey with them. You know, what Shruti has just explained there is, is not, I guess it's a mixture of not wanting young women and girls to feel they're not good enough, which was part of the research that was kind of highlighted at the beginning, if they drop a catch, but also not worrying if they drop a catch because that's fine and it doesn't matter and just pick it up and carry on. But um, if we're thinking about schools, so important in primary school is the development of what we call physical literacy, which is the competence and motivation to be active. And if we if we don't lay those foundations in primary schools, then, you know, we live through the day because that confidence that, that allows sport to be fun um, it is lost. You know, it's, it's only fun if, if you can enjoy it. And if you don't have that basic confidence and competence, it doesn't it doesn't feel like fun, no, no matter how good the coach or the instructor or the teacher is. So to get in physical literacy right in our primary schools is key. And we must never forget that primary physical education is still taught by non-specialists, um, by a profession of primary educators who are incredibly passionate about the education of the child, but might have between four and six hours of training in physical education before they're sent out to teach this really important subject to young people at the most formative stage of, you know, their self-confidence and their self-esteem in, in movement. So I know this research particularly talks about the drop-off between primary and secondary, but some of that happens because when children in primary schools, they, they tend to do what they are told to do. Um, 
And then when they get to secondary school, they have a little bit more choice and freedom and they can drop the things that they don't enjoy so much. And if we don't get physical literacy right in primary schools um, and we don't really invest in either the training and development of teachers so that they can they can teach with confidence themselves and they can be great role models for physical activity for young people. Um, and, if, and indeed, if we don't help those teachers understand that when they teach physical education and they build that body confidence and that self-esteem, then it, then it tips over into the classroom and it makes young people better learners, more engaged in their learning. If we, if we don't get that right, then, then this problem is going to be perpetuated. Of course, Paul, that's a good point to bring you back in. You know, this is where the leisure sector really uh, comes into its own, isn't it? You know, where you can really get into the heart of communities and the importance of, of activity throughout our entire lives. And it's not just the physical and mental benefits. It's it's all of those things that we learn through sport, um, leadership, teamwork, communication, etc., uh, you know, you mentioned some brilliant work that you're already doing at, at Places Leisure, but what more can be done through the sector? Well, I think actually the sector is doing some really, really good work. And, um, you know, I, I don't know any part of the sector, whether it was in the public side of the sector or in the private side of the sector, that there isn't actively engaging, trying to get people to be more active. We recognise the the hugely responsible position that we have, really, to to try and accelerate uh, the preventive agenda and and we know i mean one of the things that we're really pushing for the sector to be is considered to be an essential service you know at the moment we're still considered to be a discretionary service both with uh, local authority spending but but we believe we have a bigger part to play it does feel as though um the sector is 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 ready willing and able like anything else it does require funding and it requires funding for the long term we're here. We just need a few uh, a few people to get their checkbooks out and uh, give us some long term funding. That would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I like the um, yeah the essential service. I think that's that's brilliant, and and obviously it echoes what Ali was saying as well about the need for for more specialist PE teachers in schools and seeing it as an essential part of the curriculum and not sometimes a nice to have, which it, it sometimes does feel like. Um, Paul, I didn't get to ask you this before we started, but. Um, Dads are a key part of the solution to help re-engage teenage girls in particular. And I don't know whether you're a father and whether I can ask you that on here, but do you have children yourself and, and sort of what role have you played in, in their life in terms of keeping them active? I know that's quite personal and forgive me if, uh, no, 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 if it probes too fine. much. <laughs> I've, um, I've, I've got four children, two boys, two girls, but they're, they're of the uh, slightly older age now. So my youngest is 26. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, both my wife and I were very active and have been very active both through our childhood and into our adult years. And so I guess that role model of encouraging the kids to be active was was something that just came very, very naturally to us. So, you know, we're we're very fortunate and privileged, I suppose, to to have had that upbringing from our parents and subsequently pass it on to our children as well. But I definitely think there were... There certainly were times, and I think this is a challenge for a lot of parents now, and especially as we enter into a cost of living crisis, you know, can you afford to take the kids for a swim on a Sunday afternoon? Or is that the difference between, you know, something nice to eat for Sunday lunch? And I think that's that's the stark sort of crisis that a, that a lot of parents are facing at the moment. But I think the opportunity to be active in so many different ways now, and, and especially as you come into spring and summer, to be active more more outdoors I, th- I think if we're going to take any positives from the pandemic it's it's just how accessible and free now 
activity is online compared to to pre-pandemic. You can do pretty much any any kind of activity workout pretty much free of charge. Yes, you, you know, there's plenty of subscription channels, but there's plenty of access and content on, on online, which is free. So I think as educators, we we just got to keep opening people's eyes to what is already out there and what is available. Um, we always want to improve things, but there's a lot of content out there available for for parents. And I think this is where you know the answer doesn't doesn't solely lie with government, doesn't solely lie with with institutes or with governing bodies. Parents have a huge responsibility to both be active themselves, but also to ensure their children are active too. It's really important to talk about the whole family approach. And Truti, I know that's something that you've been uh, doing really well and successfully at the ECB. Just talk about the messaging that that you've been using and, and how that's worked. The family messaging has been the key fundamentals to the success of our programme. And whenever we've gone out to talk to the community or to talk to the children or the parents or the extended family, we've always worked on the messaging to inspire the whole family on the journey because the parents play that huge part in bringing their child to the session, for example. So being that transport or the taxi taxi person, as I often call my dad, the taxi driver, um, or even just covering the funds and fees for them to partake from their kit to um, various other aspects that you require to take part in sports or physical activity. So one of the things that we've really worked on that our national programmes really allows to do is actually allow the whole family to get involved. So we really encourage like the mother and daughter friendships because I'm a firm believer your first best friend is normally with your mum or your older sister or a female role model, especially if you're a young girl that's in your life. And we really try to get the parents or the older sisters and the family involved to take part in the activity because not only does it add a lot more fun, but it also shows that if if my mum's doing it or if my older sister's doing it, I can do it. And then it also ensures that not only does the activity take place in the session, but they also continue it at home. And that's what we want to encourage that it becomes a part of lifestyle. They're, they're catching the ball in the kitchen whilst they're cooking or various other angles that you can take part in and ensuring physical activity continues throughout the day um, with your family. So super crucial. And yeah, it's all about inspiring the family on the journey, I'd say. Yeah, you're so right. It's so important. And it's so important as well, isn't it, about activity just being accessible, you know, in everyday life and not being something that, we, you know, the whole family has to go out or pay for, that actually you can do it in your living room or your kitchen. Um, Paul, I just wanted to come pick up on something you said a little bit earlier at Women in Sport. We're, we're working with Places Foundation. Um, we, we mentioned the um, Big Sister Project funded by the million pound from the Tampon Tax Fund. What was the reason that you wanted to to get involved with that? Because obviously it's a a fantastic initiative, um, training a group of big sister peer mentors, um, as well as sort of free resources through the Places Leisure app and um, free period products. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about the importance as well of of, of friendship and girls' friendship groups in in retaining activity um, and also retaining that joy. Yeah, very, very much so. And I think one of the things that really attracted us to this particular project was the location uh, that it was uh, being active in. So Places Leisure is part of the wider uh, Places for People group that look after multiple thousands of of affordable homes across the UK. And so these areas that we're in here, Rotherham, Sheffield, Norwich, Number Valley, are key grounds for the wider group. And so we can really bring the power of the social enterprise of the whole group together to ensure 
um, that it's not it's not just young girls coming in and using our leisure facilities, but it's young girls being uh, befriended and supported uh, as part of the housing scheme, some of the community outreach work that we do, the community kitchens that we run. Um, so it was really sort of bringing a true placemaking model to life and saying, well, actually, we can support this project because we're already deep into these particular communities and we think we're best placed to be able to do that. And um, it's still early days, actually, in the delivery of this project, but it's um, it's proving to be very, very successful. We're looking uh, forward to delivering the data at the end of it. Brilliant. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken a lot about the problem and we've spoken about some of the solutions and we know we're not going to fix this overnight. But is there anything that any of you would like to, to bring up that we perhaps haven't mentioned that would be vital in, in really retaining the joy? Um, and I think that's the important thing as well. It's obviously retaining activity, but it's, it's retaining the joy. And we know that, um, you know, the teenagers are quite tumultuous and we don't want to overburden girls before they get to adulthood you know it's, it still should be a joyous and optimistic and fun time of life shouldn't it it absolutely should it should, it should be a wonderful time of life and um I think we we have always struggled with language haven't we sport is is, is kind of synonymous with a whole range of imagery that can be off-putting it can it can feel elitist it can feel like too much hard work um I know physical activity is used a lot because it's quite neutral and, 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 and it doesn't mean a sport particularly, it just means being moving. Um, but I love the word play. And play for me just sums up something that is unrestricted, organic, free, full of joy and fun. So um, I would just love to, to, to continue. We, we, we use the term play a lot at the Youth Sport Trust because it just brings joy to people's faces. When you ask people to talk about how they feel when they're playing, they say that they're having fun and, and then to make the step into physical activity and playing is, is a natural one and it's positive. Whereas sometimes um, we do know that the, the, the language of sport can, can be off-putting. I was just going to build on that as keep it fun, keep it simple um, and we will get the best results. And it's there is such a huge power to sport and harnessing the sense of belonging for everyone in the game, everyone in the game or everyone in sport is just a beautiful thing. There are just so much fun memories with people partaking in physical activity. So let's make it fun and keep it simple. Yeah, no, I'd completely agree. And I'd also point to uh, the BBC campaign late last year, kitting out the nation, our branding and our marketing, making it relatively non-competitive in certain areas, don't need all the latest kit. Um and really breaking down those barriers to participation. I think we've all got a part to play in that. But um, yeah, you know, and adapting the facilities and the activities that you do, listening to what people want so that when you're building a new facility, you're incorporating some of the some of the new ways to get people active and to play and to do sport that, that uh, perhaps weren't in uh, traditional facilities before. So we've all got a part to play. We absolutely do need to do this together. And as we've heard, the need to engage teenage girls in more active lifestyles has never been more urgent. We know that when teenage girls are active, they're healthier and happier. They've also got more self-esteem, body confidence, and the love of being active stays with them as they get older. But of course, there's still that underlying narrative that girls are not as competitive, that sport isn't as important for girls, that they'll never be as good at it as boys and that sport can be at odds with femininity. 
And then when you add to that the harassment and some of the unwanted attention that girls are getting when they're exercising, then you can understand why it becomes a burden instead of bringing freedom and joy. So together we do need to change the narrative. Thank you so much today to all the amazing guests on this episode, Tanya, Ali, Paul and Shruti. Of course, as always, a huge thank you to our podcast sponsor, CSM Live. The full report, Reframing Sport for Teenage Girls, Tackling Teenage Disengagement, is now available on the Women in Sport website. And thanks to you for listening. As always, we do love to hear from you. So if you do have any comments or questions, drop us a line on social media or head to our website at womeninsport.org.